Hi, this is Janie, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, folks, and welcome. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and what an honor it is for me to be with you today. I'm so excited. It's the first Sunday in December. We are just so pumped about this Christmas season, and I hope you are too. It is Sunday, December 4th. You know, several years ago, someone developed a personality test that was based on how you decorate for Christmas. This is how it turned out. If you have nothing but multicolored lights on your tree, you're an extrovert. If you use only white lights, you're the type who asks your guests to remove their shoes at the front door. If you use blinking lights on your tree, you have ADD. If your tree has homemade ornaments, you have lots of children. If you string popcorn on the tree, you have way too much time on your hands. If you use nothing but red decorations, you secretly wish you lived in a department store. If your tree has a vague evergreen smell, you bought a healthy tree. If your tree has a strong evergreen smell, you sprayed it with pine salt. And lastly, if your tree is just plain smelly, you probably have a dead bird in your tree someplace. I kid you not, that's actually a list that was published in a Reader's Digest some years ago. Incredible, isn't it? Well, you know, Christmas is a festive holiday. It's just filled with cheerful decorations and colors. And that's a good thing because it sits right in the middle of winter when the sky's often gloomy, the trees are barren, and the grass is brown. Offsetting this dreariness and the emptiness is Christmas, with all its bright colors, reds, greens, yellows, blues, and whites. And it's partly because of those colors that Christmas is such a joyful holiday. And so this month, our sermon series is called The Colors of Christmas. Today, we're going to be looking at the color green, and the main scripture reference is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Get your Bible or Bible apps out, and let's read that together. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. This is what it says. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beginning of this incredible time of year, this Christmas season. Lord, thank you for this sermon series, The Colors of Christmas, and the chance we have to talk about a green Christmas today. Thank you for your word. Teach us from it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You know, at Christmas, the color green is just about everywhere. It's in the garlands, it's in the wreaths, and of course, it's in the Christmas trees as well. It's a color that cheers you up, and it speaks of the promise of life and hope. One of the reasons green is used at Christmas is because it speaks of a time to come, a time called spring, a time when flowers bloom, trees blossom, and the grass becomes green again. Christmas says new life is just around the corner, and at just the right time, life will replace the death and decay. Galatians 4 says that's what happened when Christ was born. Once again, verse 4 says, when the right time came, God sent his son. Think about that line, when the right time came, God sent the promise of life into a world that was filled with death and decay. Now, what does Galatians mean by saying when the right time came? 
It means that God had spent a great deal of time setting things up for Jesus to come in the flesh. The birth of the baby in the manger had been planned for centuries. In the Bible, we're told that back in the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, God came down and confronted them and pronounced a curse on them. But then God turned to the serpent that had tempted Eve, and he promised him, I will cause hostility, or hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, meaning the offspring of the woman, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. In other words, when the promised child was to be born, he wasn't going to be the offspring of a man and woman. This child was to be the offspring of a woman. God tells Satan that the conflict will be between your offspring and hers. So Isaiah 7.14 prophesied, All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin, in other words, a woman who's never slept with a man, will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So once again, this child was not going to be the offspring of a man and a woman. He was to be born of a virgin. Now look at Genesis 3.15 again. The second aspect of that prophecy in Genesis was that this promised child would suffer pain. It said his heel would be struck. But in the process, he'd give Satan a mortal blow from which he'd never recover. It says his head would be struck. That's what took place when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave on the third day. And that was just the first prophecy, that when the time had fully come, a promised child would be born to take away the power of Satan. You know, again and again, throughout the pages of Scripture, God predicted the coming of a Messiah. God proclaimed where he would be born, when he would be born, how he would live and die, and what he was being sent to do. God made a promise, and that promise was a Messiah would come. There were over 300 direct prophecies and hundreds of veiled hints of what this Messiah would be like and what he would do. So it's clear that with that promise and with these prophecies, God had a plan, and the plan was this. When the fullness of time had come, the Son of God would be born in a manger in Bethlehem, and he would bring with him the promise of life to a dead and dying world. This plan, it was so intricate that it even involved the rise and fall of great nations to prepare for his coming. Back in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 2, God gave King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon a baffling dream. It so confused and distressed him that he called for all of his magicians and astrologers to explain it to him, to tell him what the dream was all about. But they couldn't do it. Finally, someone suggested that the king call for Daniel. Then in Daniel chapter 2, verse 19, it says, That night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. A short time later, we pick up the story in verse 26, where it says, The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, Is it true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied in verse 27, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. Verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. 
Then Daniel explains the details of the king's dream in verses 31 to 35. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not with human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on the threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Daniel continued by explaining to King Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold represented his kingdom. Then Daniel said to him in verse 39a, But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise up to take your place. Now this kingdom had a chest and arms made of silver, representing the kingdoms of the Medes and Persians. Then continuing in verse 39b, he said, After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. This was the empire that Alexander the Great created for Greece. But even that kingdom was replaced. In verse 40 it says, Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. This was the empire of Rome, which ruled Judea when Jesus was born. And then in verse 44, talking about the rock that had been cut out of the mountain, Daniel declared, During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. Now, before I go any farther, I'd like to address something here. There are a lot of prophetic teachers today that interpret the statue in Daniel 2 as having a fifth kingdom represented by its feet. They say this fifth kingdom is a future empire that precedes the second coming of Christ. But I really disagree with that for a number of reasons. The first two reasons are essential to the text. First, Daniel doesn't make a distinction between the legs and feet. They appear to be both part of the same kingdom. And second, the four kingdoms that are represented by the statue rise and fall one after the other. There's no time gap between the nation of the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. The popular prophetic teaching about the feet of the statue would require this enormous time gap that is not part of Daniel's explanation. My other reason for rejecting this interpretation is theological. Jesus came to establish his kingdom. Colossians 1.13 tells us that he, meaning God, has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Many who teach prophecy have Jesus being a king in some future realm. I am convinced, beloved, that Jesus reigns right now and that his kingdom shall never end. Now, look again with me at verse 44. Daniel declared, During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. Biblical prophecy in history has focused on that one event, that in the fullness of time, God would send his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, into the world. 
and when that child was born, he would establish a kingdom that would last forever. That's what the angel told Mary in Luke 1.33 when he said, And he, meaning Jesus, will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. The kingdom was the church, which began on the day of Pentecost, less than two weeks after Jesus ascended into heaven. That's why God had spent so much time working with the nations of this world. He wanted to make sure that everything was ready for the coming of Jesus. But why did it take God so long to get things ready? Well, frankly, I don't know. I don't know why he did what he did the way he did it. But I do know that when the time had come for Jesus to be born, the world was primed and ready for him. When Jesus was born, for the first time in human history, everything was right for God to spread his message to mankind. Check this out. When Jesus was born, there was a universal government in place. Rome ruled over the entire known world. And the empire of Rome produced one of the longest periods of universal peace. In fact, it was so unique that historians still refer to it as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Rome not only produced a lasting peace, but they created a universal system of roads throughout the entire empire. That was a first of its kind. And throughout the Roman Empire, there was a universal language that practically everyone knew and used, and that was Greek. And God used that one language to spread the gospel. There was one government, one peace, one system of roads, and one language shared by all. And this was brought into being by the one God who sent his one son at this one time in history to save the world filled with the one cause of despair and death, our sin. Jesus came into the world to deal with that sin, with their sin, with our sin, with my sin. God gave us the promise of new life through his son, and he filled his scriptures with prophecies describing what his son would accomplish. And God spent centuries fulfilling his promise and his prophecies and putting his plan into effect. And he did it all, beloved, for you. Galatians 4.5 tells us that God sent him, meaning Jesus, to buy freedom for us while we were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Amen to that. A Sunday school teacher was teaching her second and third graders and asked them what they wanted for Christmas. One girl wanted some dolls. Another wanted a cell phone. Still another was holding out for a laptop. There was even a kid who joked about having a car. Then the teacher asked them how long they would use those gifts. Well, as you might imagine, the kids gave a variety of answers. We know that from experience, those gifts would last maybe a couple of days Maybe not even a month, maybe just a few years, but sooner or later, the children would either grow too old to play with them, or they'll break, wear out, or just get lost. But when God gave us his son, this was a gift that was going to last forever. We would never outgrow our need for Jesus, and his love for us would never break down, wear out, or get lost. What God has offered us in Jesus was not some toy that would eventually be cast aside, no, what he was offering was a relationship that was based on the gift of his son. Look again at Galatians 4, 5. It says that in Jesus we have become his, meaning God's, very own children. Now, as a dad, I have found that there were times when I'd buy gifts for someone else's kids. 
They might want some candy or a toy. And hey, I like kids. If they want something small, I'll try to get it for them. But I'd never buy them as many gifts as I would for my own children. I may like those other children, but they're not mine. But my kids are different. They belong to me. And I'm more likely to buy more things for them than I am for others. Now, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible is found in Romans 8.32. There the Apostle Paul says, Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, wouldn't he also give us everything else? God sent his son to earth that we might become his children. And if God went to all that trouble to make us his children, he is more than willing to do even more for us than he would for others. Not because we deserve it, but because we belong to him. In fact, Ephesians 3.20 tells us that God is able, through his mighty power and work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Now, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem didn't save us. Let me say that again. The birth of Christ in Bethlehem did not save us. His birth in the manger was just the beginning of God's plan. The fulfillment of his plan was found in an empty grave three days after Jesus' death on Calvary. One woman talked of walking into church one Easter Sunday and greeted a friend, Happy Christmas! She quickly corrected herself and said, Oh, I'm sorry, I mean Happy Easter. Her friend smiled and replied, Can't have one without the other. True that. In Christmas, we find the promise of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born in Bethlehem so that in the spring, three years later, his death, burial, and resurrection would bring life to a decayed and dying world. This is the true message of Christmas, and this message should shape how we look at the very images of the season. One man described how he saw things. This is what he said. When I see a Christmas tree, I'm reminded that the first Adam took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sinned against a holy God. But 1 Corinthians 15 tells me that the second Adam, Jesus, took the fruit of that sin and bled and died on another tree to pay the price of that sin. When I smell the scent of the evergreen, I'm reminded of the new life I enjoy because of what Jesus did on the cross, which gives me everlasting life. The ornaments hanging on the tree also remind me of what Jesus has done for me. When I see the red ones, I think about the blood of Jesus that he shed for my salvation. The silver and gold remind me of God's blessings in my life. And the candy cane reminds me that Jesus is the good shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4. The white stripes remind me that Jesus was sinless, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The red stripes that he shed his blood for me, Ephesians 1, 7. Both colors of the stripes on the candy cane remind me that my spiritual healing comes only through his stripes, which were caused by the beatings he took at his crucifixion, Isaiah 53, 5. And the angel on top of the tree reminds me of my responsibility to tell the world that Jesus has come, just as the angel of old did with the shepherds. Luke 2.10. This is our opportunity to begin as we consider the green Christmas with the promise and hope that is coming in the spring. Yes, let's celebrate. And all God's children said, Amen. 
Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.